This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 defines faith as the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's the definition we can agree with. And yet it's, it's a definition that we strive to understand completely as we expand our thinking, as we learn more about faith. And I have a tendency, maybe you have a tendency to, to as we're thinking about what this faith looks like, focus specifically on the, on the hope for and what we do not see, the, the mystery of faith. And as we, as we ponder that, as we, we have a tendency to, to drift toward that, it causes us to think about the things of God in uncertain terms, in, in terms of the subjective. Because when we consider God, we can't see him. And we consider our relationship with God. There's a lot of hope involved. But in order for us to gain a full understanding of faith, we also have to be willing to explore the the confidence and the assurance. And as we step back into the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, Paul's words here in this chapter are going to be laying a foundation of confidence for us, strength, of assurance, so that we can move forward with a, a deeper, fuller, more complete understanding of what faith is in our lives and how we can experience the fullness of that understanding. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, verse 1 begins with this word, therefore, transitional connective word, reminding us that everything we're going to read, we have to keep within the mindset of everything that we've already read in the book of Romans. And we think back to what Paul has been describing to us in the first seven chapters about sinfulness and punishment that comes with that, about the, the grace that's been made available to us through the blood of Christ that washes away our sins, that declares us not guilty before God, about the law that, that God provided to his people and the difficulty that rose up, especially among the Jewish people, of, of legalism and trying to, to attain perfection according to the law, and then thinking that they could earn their own salvation through the law. Paul reminds us of the significance of living our lives wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, living our lives with a complete understanding of that faith. And chapter 7 concluded with a reminder of the tension that exists within us between our desire to live for the Lord and do what's right and the desire of the flesh towards sin and that that constant struggle to do what's right and yet recognize the, the pull toward what is wrong. So, having thought through all those things, therefore now we read, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For those who accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, we experience that forgiveness, that freedom from sin. We've been declared not guilty. There's now no longer any condemnation. There's forgiveness instead. And we, we appreciate that new status. And yet knowing that we're not guilty doesn't mean that we feel 
not guilty. The process of, of building those feelings it is complicated. It's difficult for us. We should no longer feel shame and guilt. We shouldn't have a place in our lives, in our faith, in our relationship with the Lord. And yet, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we're reminded. So there are situations in which guilt comes back up. Maybe it's because even though we've accepted Christ and have experienced his forgiveness, there's still some things in our lives that need to be addressed, resolved, removed. And because of those things that remain, our conscience brings up those feelings of guilt. That's appropriate. Maybe when you're at work, when you're in the community, when you're around people who aren't a part of your church, who know about your faith, who know about your relationship with the Lord, they see in your life some things that aren't quite consistent with that declaration of faith. They, they see that you're doing things that they know really don't align. And maybe sometimes they point those out to you and those feelings of guilt they come back up. Maybe for you it's the past, the regrets of the past, the, the knowledge that, of all the things that you've done that, that burdens you with the weight of, of shame and guilt, regret. Maybe you look around at the people around you in, in your church. You see people who talk about their faith, the, the genuineness. You see them serving. You see them leading. And, and you begin to, to compare your life to theirs. And as you think through those comparisons, you begin to feel inadequate. You begin to feel that, that sense of, of guilt rising up. There's a continual struggle within us to overcome the tension that exists. That draw toward those things of the flesh, sin, and that draw toward the power of the Spirit. Fully overcoming that struggle requires that we would learn to trust the power of the Spirit in our lives, that we would discover what it is to, to surrender to that power. And that means that we're going to have to let go of some things. It means we're going to have to let go of the things that we used to look to for power, for security, for strength. We're going to have to let go of those. We're going to have to let go of trying to control situations ourselves by our own power and strength, because we know where that gets us. And instead, look to the Spirit. Lean on the Spirit. Trust His power in our lives to carry us through. And what I want to highlight for you right now is this last part of verse 2. I want to ask you to think about the words that I'm going to describe, because they're going to come up again and again throughout this chapter, and I want you to be aware of it so you can see them with me. What I want to talk to you about is this Connection that Paul makes. Connection between sin and death. And opposite of that, the spirit and life. Verse 2, he says, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now just keep that in the back of your mind, and we'll see how it comes up as we continue reading. We're in verse 3 now. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now the law was meant to identify sin. It was meant to point out wrong, things that are off limits, and, and to describe the consequences of those things. Ideally, when we're made aware of those things, we would choose not to do that. 
But what the law was powerless to do was to keep us from sin and to resolve what would take place when we did sin. Yes, there's punishment, but what then? The law could never provide a remedy for sin, but God did. And his solution didn't violate the law. Instead, God's solution fulfilled the law as he sent Jesus as a a sacrifice to take our place, a substitution for us, to pay the price of our sin, to fulfill the consequences that we should have paid. Christ took that upon himself and paid it for us. The punishment was carried out. And instead of being punished, we received forgiveness through Christ. It's significant for us to know that we needed something other than, something more than the law, and that something is Christ. Paul, in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, very clearly points out, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And it's in Christ that we find that solution. Then Paul continues to say that it's important for us to understand what it means to live according to the flesh, not according to the flesh, but to live according to the Spirit, to live by the power of the Spirit in our lives. One author suggests that we gain an accurate understanding of the way the Spirit empowers our lives to think in terms of vehicles. Now, we all have access to a vehicle, car. We know what it takes to drive from point A to point B. We need to fill up the tank with gas. And we know that's a consumable fuel source. As you drive, your gas depletes and you need to refuel. You need to fill the tank back up periodically. If you ignore that fact, you'll find yourself on the side of the road, no longer able to drive your car because the fuel is gone. The power has been used up. Now, that's not the way the Spirit works in our lives. And yet, many of us get that feeling about our faith when we think about what it means to come to church on a Sunday morning and get fueled up, get that, get that feeling, the joy of worshiping together, celebrating together as a, as a family of believers. And we, we feel energized by this time together. And, and we, we go through our week and we feel drained and exhausted, like we're running out. And we, we come back on a Sunday morning and we feel the, the intensity. We feel that energy again. Or, or maybe in our devotional time, we, we, we connect with God and it's a very meaningful time. But then the, the stress of life carries through and weighs us down. And we look forward to that time where we can recharge and refuel. And we have this thing working in the back of our mind that tells us that's the way the Spirit works, but that's not the way the the indwelling Spirit works in our life. This author suggests we think in terms of a subway train that rides on tracks underground. Not just two tracks for the wheels, there's a third track. There's a rail that's electrified that constantly, continually supplies power to the train so that no matter where it is, it has what it needs to go to get to the destination, to fulfill its course. Or maybe a trolley in a, in a big city that runs on a cable, a cable car and continually in contact with that cable has the power that it needs to get from point A to point B. That is what the indwelling power of the Spirit does in our lives, empowering us to live for the Lord, encouraging, directing, guiding, correcting, so that we can do what it is that God is calling us to do, continually empowered by his indwelling presence. As we remain in contact with him, We find everything that we need to live for the Lord. Verse 5, Paul continues. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. 
Paul reminds us that our thoughts influence our actions and our way of life. He tells us that those who are living according to the flesh do so because it's what they're thinking about. You think about all the, the ways in which your mind draws you towards something, the, the goals that you have to accomplish things, the, the desires that you have, the, the perspective and point of view that you have, the things that you, you daydream about, that your, your mind comes back to. We recognize that what we focus our minds on very quickly becomes the things that we make decisions about and the way that we act and the, the pattern of our lives. And when we focus on the things of the flesh, we focus on desires of life, on pleasure, on fulfilling those pleasures. We're drawn to act in that way as we make those decisions. Those who are living according to the Spirit instead focus on more spiritual things. They, they long for an understanding of the mind of God. They, they, they seek to, to understand the heart of God. They look for ways to, to belong to God's presence, to spend time connected with him. And as they focus their mind on the things of God, when they make that, that choice to put their mind there, the pattern of their life follows through in that mindset. Our thoughts directly influence the pattern of our lives. And one of the major differences between those who live for the, their own desires and those who live for the Lord is the content of their minds. Now, we understand that to be true, and yet there are times when we step back and say, I can have both. I can spend my time on Sunday mornings thinking about God and then still think about some other things, still explore some other avenues. I can, I can, I can walk this, this road in the middle and compartmentalize those parts of my life. I can, I can live for the Lord at the right times and yet still enjoy life at others. But that, that path cannot be sustained. From what Paul tells us, our minds will betray us. And no matter where we try to lean as we play that middle ground, our minds will drift. And even while we're making an attempt to live for the Lord, our minds will draw us back to the things of the flesh. Unless we make a very decisive choice to focus our minds, to keep our minds and trust them to the Lord. It's important for us to recognize how easily our minds are swayed. And when we don't make a conscious choice, how quickly our perspective can change, especially when we think about the influence of the world around us, of culture, of what news media and social media are telling us to believe. And we have to, we have to understand that the, the information that we're taking in is biased information. That's what it is. The information we take in is from a particular source with a particular point of view trying to influence the way that we think and act. It's all biased. We need to be aware of that when we take it in so that we can evaluate that information appropriately. As we're scrolling through social media feed, as we're taking in the news, understanding the, the things that are trying to mold and shape our thinking, even the people that are in our lives, people that we care about, people that we have given the right to, to speak into our lives, they also have a very particular perspective that they're trying to get us to understand and align with. That's the way we're made, to enjoy that, that like-mindedness. 
And we need to be aware of that fact and choose very carefully the influences that we allow into our minds because what we think will directly influence the pattern of our lives. If we're truly to live according to the power of the Spirit, we must set our moral compass according to the Word of God. We must let Scripture determine our point of view and direct us in the path that we need to take. We cannot let anything else direct us in that way. We cannot set our moral compass by any other means and expect to continue to live for the Lord. When we allow culture to bend our minds away from God's word, we will soon find that we're living in opposition to God, that we have become hostile to his will and to his way. That's the product of allowing our minds to be pulled away from the things of God. When we continue to foster that lifestyle, our actions will not be pleasing to God. This is Paul's message, plain and simple. He continues in verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Now it's the Spirit of God that provides us with confidence and strength. When we accept Christ as our Savior, we discover the life that's made possible to us by the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit. We are fueled by our constant connection with his Spirit. We are guided, directed, encouraged, corrected, given everything that we need to live for him. And Paul's words here indicate the connection between our belonging to Christ and the indwelling spirit. And it's important for us to recognize. When you look through the New Testament, you'll find examples. You'll find statements that talk about Christ in our hearts, the spirit who lives within us. There are a few places that actually talk about when that takes place. First Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says this, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we're all given the one spirit to drink. In the book of Acts, Peter replied to the Jews around him, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That indwelling presence is made available to us when we accept Christ as Lord and Savior and are baptized in his name. Verse 12, Paul continues, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, I don't usually think about my obedience to God as an obligation. I think of it in terms of a loving response, uh, actions of gratitude because of the forgiveness that's been given, but obligation. That's a hard word, and yet that's what Paul says clearly is the case. Therefore, because of all of these things, because of the power of Spirit made, the Holy Spirit made available to us, we have an obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to it, but we have an obligation to obey God 
And I think, I think that's the, the very clear distinction and why that obligation exists. Because when we lived according to the flesh, our response to those thoughts was to fulfill those desires, to act on that. Now that we live according to the Spirit, we have an obligation to no, to no longer indulge in those things, but to instead put our minds on the things of God and to make decisions that will draw our actions down that path toward living for the Lord. And that is the obligation that we have, we think in terms of children with their parents, parents who provide for the needs of their children, who guide them, encourage them, and correct them at the right times. And the hope is that those children would understand what their parent is doing for them and, and choose to obey and, and respond to all of the things that have been provided and recognize their expectation, obligation, desire to obey their parents. And we think of what that means for us with God, God the Father, who has provided everything to us, who continually guides us and leads us by the power of the Spirit. And our response, now we see in terms of expectation and obligation, the Spirit helps remind us that we are his children. It agrees with our spirit that we can look to God as our, as our Abba Father, this affectionate term, this term of endearment, of closeness with God, that he truly is our Heavenly Father, that we have been adopted into a spiritual family. Now that's, a, that's an incredible image that Paul paints for us of what our relationship with God is. It is an adoption where sin left us feeling guilty, lost, alone, abandoned, worthless. God chose to speak worth into our lives, to embrace us as his family, to call us his own, to provide a place for us to feel connected and loved, a place of belonging, a place of forgiveness. We are adopted into the family of God, claimed by God as his children, entrusted with an inheritance for eternity. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ as we think toward the future. As Paul's words continue in verse 18, he helps us think in terms of time to step back from the current situation we're in and see past, present, and future of how God is working and what that looks like. Here's what he says. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be 
the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That's a lot to take in. What do we find out about the present state of things from Paul's words? We find out that things are in tension. Things are unresolved. The world is groaning in expectation, waiting for the moment when the children of God will be revealed, when the inheritance comes to fruition, waiting the fulfillment of God's plan in our lives. God is working on our behalf. The Spirit is working in our lives. Even when we feel this tension, we don't know specifically what what it means. We don't know specifically what to pray about. The Spirit who knows our hearts and minds is willing to intercede with God for us. The things we can't even understand, groans that are unintelligible, the Spirit communicates what we're thinking and feeling to God as we wait for the day when we can finally step into our eternal inheritance in the future. What about the past? Paul tells us God has been working for our redemption. We think about all that God has been doing, how he provided the law, how he provided for our salvation through Christ, how he chose to send his son to provide for us the opportunity to choose to belong to him. That God, in his foreknowledge, would see the decisions that we would make. This passage is difficult for us to understand because of our limited perspective, because we don't know what it is to look at time and see all the things that have ever happened, that are happening now, and that will ever happen. That's God's perspective and not ours. God has foreknowledge. And God makes decisions based on that foreknowledge. And Paul used this word predestined. It's a hard word for us to understand because destiny for us has taken on such a mystical, powerful connotation. And we we hear that word and we think about things that we have no choice things that are going to come to pass, whether we want them to or not. That's our destiny. And yet, that's not the way Paul uses this word. Paul says that based on God's foreknowledge, he predestined those who would choose to become conformed to the image of his son. Based on what they would choose to do, he would determine in advance how he would respond to those decisions. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God has been working. And in all these things, all all these terms that we seek to understand, none of this supersedes our decision to belong to the Lord. All of it coincides with that decision to belong to God, to live for God, to strive to understand how he is working and how he will continue to work. And then we come to this verse, in all things, God works for the good. This may very well be the most misunderstood, misquoted verse in Scripture. We, we read that phrase, in all things, God works for the good. And we, we think about the joy of what that means, that God is bringing about good things, that God is bringing about blessings and peace and comfort in our lives. All of us, everyone. But that's not what the full statement means. When we, we read this this phrase in context of the full sentence. It's this, all thing, in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. There's, there's more for us to understand. And not only that, we need to understand the word good appropriately. And we may not want to admit that the good God has in mind for us is very different than the good things we imagine. God is working for our ultimate good. And our ultimate good 
is our eternal good. The good God is working out in our lives is a connection with him, a relationship with him that brings about the, the kind of fulfillment, the kind of life that we can have in nowhere else. Nothing else in this world can provide that kind of living, that kind of hope for eternity. But that's the good that God is working out in our lives. The difficult thing for us to understand is that while God is working for our good, we will probably be experiencing very bad things in the process. That we will be uncomfortable. We will experience tension and difficulty. That God's good, the good that God is working out in our lives, has very little to do with our comfort and our joy and our peace. The reality that I have come to understand in my life is that when I'm comfortable, I get lazy. When I'm comfortable, I embrace the comfort and I do everything that I can to maintain that comfort. Why would I change when things are comfortable? The times in my life that I needed to make a change, that I needed to address the things that were wrong and surrender them to the Lord and, and turn to him and allow him to work in me. Those decisions didn't come because I was comfortable. Those decisions came because of difficulty that I was facing, because my world came crashing down, because I hit rock bottom, and I finally opened my eyes to the changes that I needed to make. I finally opened my eyes to, to the need that I had in my life for the Lord, for his work, to mold me and shape me into his image. And when we, when we recognize and understand that, imagine that in your life, you, you've sensed a similar kind of thing. We know that in order for us to have our eyes open to our need for the Lord, in order for us to begin to, to even want to make those changes, sometimes that comfort has to be ripped away. Sometimes we have to experience the difficulty, the consequences that come from our decisions so that we'll be willing to, to look to God to trust him, to deliver us, to, to find hope in him of a solution for the situation that we can't resolve on our own. God is working for our good. But that doesn't mean there's no suffering in the process. It does mean that we have hope in him. Verse 31, Paul continues. Here's what he says. What, what then shall we say in response to all of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is so powerful, so all-encompassing that there is nothing that can separate us from his love. Nothing that will keep us from his love. His love 
enables us to conquer. It was the love of God that sent Jesus to die for us, to reach out to us in our darkest need, in our sinfulness, and provide hope, delivering us from sin, delivering us from the hold of sin in our lives, freeing us to live in him and for him. It is the power, the love of God that provides the power of the Spirit to indwell us, to guide us, to provide everything that we need. It's the love of God that enables us to conquer that, that, that constant tug towards sin, to overcome it, to, to, to be rid of it, to remove it, to address it. But think about this. While God's love enables us to conquer, it doesn't stop there. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We're not called to live lives apart from sin. We're called to be more than conquerors of sin. We're called to live lives for the Lord, to understand his calling towards something greater than we've ever been before. A life full of purpose and meaning as we surrender to his calling a life that that fulfills us so totally that it resonates, that that it, it helps us understand that in Him, we are as we were meant to be. It is a life full of His love, a love that changes us completely and spills out into the lives of other people as we faithfully follow where He leads us. There are opportunities all around us to continually make an impact in this world with his love and grace. And that's what God is calling us to do. That is who God is calling us to be. As we live in the power of his love, a love that's so powerful, nothing in this world can rip it away from us. Nothing in this world can get in between us and God's love. A whole list of things Paul tells us that are powerless against the love of God. Expressed to us through Christ our Savior. But as you read through this list, you might notice there's something that's not on this list. Something we need to take into account. And that is the, the decision that God allows for us to make. That while nothing, nothing can, can pull God's love away from us, it's still up to us to choose to accept the love of God in our lives. It's up to us to choose to remain in God's love as we move forward in the future. To, to choose to set our thinking on the things of God so we can live according to the power of the Spirit. To continually be devoted to His will and to His ways. Decisions that we make here and now. Decisions that we continually make as we live for the Lord. To choose the pattern of our lives. This morning, those are the decisions I want to bring before you. First and foremost, the decision to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To recognize your need for Him. And also the decision that you may need to make to continue in that life. Decision to recognize that, that while you once accepted Christ, now you haven't been quite living the way you know you should according to the power of the Spirit. And that is a continual decision that you, you'll have to make that begins here and now and will carry you on into the future. So this morning, as we conclude, I want to invite you, if you have a decision to make, if there's anything in your life that you need prayer for, would you please come forward as we stand and sing together?